You've tuned in to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where science meets ancient wisdom. And we're your hosts, Katerina and Brett Morrison. What I love about our show is the high-caliber guests appearing. Um, and tonight is no exception. We have uh, two great dingo whisperers. One is uh, Dr. Kylie Cairns, PhD. She's a population geneticist specialising in conservation genetics, published many papers in support of our um, Australian native dingo. Um, so Dr. Kylie Cairns and her team have discovered through research that most of the animals are actually pure dingo and only a small percentage had interbred with uh, domestic dogs. So I've just got her on the, sh- on the uh, phone right now. Hello. How are you going, Kylie? How are you? It's a wellness I'm couch with uh, Brett and Katerina. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. So I've already actually introduced you, but um, the fabulous thing about you were that uh, you and your team have discovered through research that most of the animals are actually pure dingo and only a small percentage had interbred with domestic dogs. Um, you're a great uh, dingo geneticist and an advocate that has busted the myth of stories of wild dogs roaming Australia. Thanks to, was it six years of your DNA research? Yep, yep, six years. <laughs> yeah, so for, for the past 20 years, scientists, I'll just give them um, the uh, audience a background. So for the past 20 years, yeah. scientists had actually used uh, 23 points on a dingo genome to determine the purity of our Australian dingo. But Kylie um, and her team really upped the standard and they actually utilised... 195,000 points. And this new standard actually resulted in findings that the animals were incorrectly identified as crossbreeds. And and, um, it's a real game changer to the dingo and its uh, conservation, isn't it, Kylie? It really is because it's it's fundamentally changing our knowledge about what the animals in the wild are. Uh, We used to think that, you know, in parts of Victoria particularly, but also New South Wales, um, that there were basically no pure dingoes left or, or very, very few. And um, what we now know is that that's not true and that, you know, in Victoria, it's something like 88% of the animals we DNA tested were pure. And in New South Wales, there was something like 60% at least. So, I mean, it's really fundamentally changing the information that we have about these, these animals, but also um, sort of telling us that the way we're managing them in the landscape uh, needs to be changed. So... Yeah. So um, can you explain to the audience um, the difference between 23 points? What do you actually do in the lab, like, and 195,000 points? How that's a game changer? So uh, basically uh, the 23 marker DNA test that we used to use, it was first developed in 1999, and then from then it's been widespread, um, used by a lot of researchers, uh, you know, government agencies, conservation groups, for DNA testing. And it basically looks at 23 different bits of DNA. Um, and then, it, you know, there's some modeling to tell you whether or not the answer is, you know, pure dingo or a hybrid or, or a feral dog. Um, and, and technology has come on a lot in the last 20 years. Um, as you would know, if you watch any sort of like CSI TV show or something like that. Um, and so this, the types of DNA technologies that we have available to us now are dramatically different. So instead of being able to look at 23 different bits of DNA and that being cutting edge, we can look at hundreds of thousands of bits of DNA at the same time. So, you know, a lot of the lab processes are quite similar, 
but it sort of depends which machine I put it in. So I put it in the old machine that's like 23 years old, or do I put it in the brand new machine that can look at 195? Wow. I'm going to use the new machine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That makes a significant difference, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, it's the same sort of technology that you or I would use if we were going and getting one of those ancestry tests yeah. to tell us where our family came from. So we've sort of updated it from the sorts of DNA tests that would have been done, you know, 20 years ago to the type of DNA tests that people are using on themselves now. We're using them on dogs and well, dingoes. Well, this is definitely a game changer. Your research has been absolutely extraordinary. Um, and how it's a game changer is that governments use the term wild dog to exterminate the dingo with a term the public will, I guess, accept. However, um, they utilise the term dingo when they are conserving them in national parks. So why is it really important um, to have the language um, correct? Yeah, so there has been some research that showed that people... Um, misunderstand what the word wild dog means. So they think that dingoes and wild dogs are different things, they're different animals, when the government is using wild dog to refer to dingoes. Um, and also that people support the conserving dingoes or protecting dingoes, um, but they support killing wild dogs because they think that they're feral animals. And so basically using terms that are confusing to the general public or people who are um, less aware of the scientific research about dingoes um, means that people don't understand that we are actually killing dingoes inside of national parks. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Australians, wouldn't be comfortable with that um, because because dingoes are accepted as being a native species and we think of national parks as being places where native species are being protected, not where they're being killed. Now, your research is fantastic going through it. Um, now, how wrong were the previous researchers claiming only over only 4% of dingoes in Victoria were pure? But um, the research published in Molecular Ecology found that the figure to be as high as 87.1% and the further yeah. 6 5% uh, were 93% pure. Why is yes, there no yeah. outcry about this? Oh, I, don't, I don't think that there was anything um, deliberate in the information being incorrect um, from the old research. It's just sort of a complication of the fact that the method that we've been using in the past wasn't as accurate as what we thought. Um, and the assumptions that we made when we were carried out that DNA testing were incorrect. So we used to think, for example, when the test, when the first DNA test was developed for looking at dingoes, we thought that all dingoes around Australia were basically the same and that there was just one type or population of dingoes. Yeah. Uh, and what my research shows is that there's actually four, at least four different um, populations or types of dingoes around Australia. Can you explain so, them to our audience? Because I, I think most of them think we've only got that ginger eastern board. Yeah, so it's um, it's not necessarily about the coat colour, it's more just about the the genetic type, so sort of like um, people found in different parts of Australia might have different language groups or come from different places. Um, but basically, um, there's four different wild types in Australia. So there's the Western type that's basically found around Western Australia, Northern Territory, Central Australia um, and South Australia, uh, as well as parts of Queensland. There's the eastern type, which is pretty much found uh, in southern Queensland to New South Wales, um, a little bit south of Sydney. Uh, there's a south type, which I 
which is basically what people used to call alpine dingoes, and that's largely found in yeah. southern New South Wales and Victoria. And then there's this another population called, which I've called Big Desert, um, because mm. that's where I first found them. Um, but it's basically found in western Victoria and um, parts of South Australia, particularly Narcat Conservation Area. Um, and so, you know, the DNA testing that we were doing before, because it assumed there was one type, it would misidentify animals from, say, Victoria as being hybrids because it was comparing the southern dingoes to the dingoes in, like, WA or Central Australia. Yeah, wow. So that makes a big big shift, doesn't it? So you're saying now that the, what was previously known as alpine dingoes are um, now southern dingoes? Uh, it's what well, we think, though. I think, I think we have to be careful about using uh, terms like alpine because... I mean, dingoes aren't dingoes in Victoria aren't just found in the alpine area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, when we when we were using those terms, alpine and desert, that's more relating to the physical appearance of the animal. Oh, right. So you know, Lynn may have talked a bit about mm. there being differences in the physical appearance. So you know, the amount of hair or the stockiness yeah. of the body, mm-hmm. yeah. like differences in the head shape, that sort of thing. Uh, and we haven't yet connected the dots between the physical appearance and the genetics. So we don't know if South dingoes always have an alpine dingo appearance or mm. if they're more variable. That's something that we still need to look into. Um, but definitely the finding that there's multiple different populations of dingoes is really important um, because, you know, some scientists have suggested in the past that, you know, if we've got dingoes in the Northern Territory and Western Australia that we're fine, then we can just exterminate all the dingoes south oh of the dingo yeah. fence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this research is basically saying, no, we can't do that because if we killed all the dingoes in New South Wales and Victoria, yeah. uh, we would be killing three different populations of dingoes mm. that don't exist anywhere else. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I think... I think one thing that we really need to be talking about um, now that we have this new research is is how we're going to be managing dingoes in national parks, uh, particularly in places like Victoria and New South Wales. I mean, Victoria um, is sort of unique in that dingoes are theoretically a listed threatened species. Mm. They are listed Mm. threatened species, but they're also managed as a listed threatened species. Um, and they're not protected outside of certain areas inside national parks. And there's still uh, a bounty on their heads too, isn't there? Like, you, and like there's, exactly, and there's still a bounty yeah. on their heads. For, um, for an animal that's listed on the endangered species list. And it's, it's criminal. I've got to say that we're ferocious custodians and supporters of two gorgeous alpine dingoes. I don't know if we should call them alpine dingoes now, but I remember well, someone saying... Well, they were this morning. Yeah, they should be about... You learn something <laughs> every day, don't you? But there was only about 20 to 30 in the... Should I say alpine region? Yeah, they were in yeah. the alpine region. Um, so this research um, findings have implications for the ways that Australia, Australia's native canid, including the extent to which they are culled, are managed. This is, this is exciting. We really have to have a discussion on dingo management in the landscape and whether the public thinks it's acceptable to culling a native animal, particularly in the manner that is currently done, 1080, you know, and shooting them. Traps. Yeah. Traps. And I it mean, takes... Yeah, up to four days to die. Yeah, and I think the worst thing about 1080, and people may not be aware of this, is that um, 
in parts of New South Wales particularly, uh, there's a lot of aerial baiting that goes on. So that's mm. basically where an airplane or a helicopter drops 1080 poison meat baits out of the airplane into the national park. Um, and the target of those baits is either dingoes, or called wild dogs, or foxes. Um, but but the thing yeah. is, those baits can kill either. So if you're baiting for foxes, you'll be killing the dingoes in the area But they well. also take out quolls, goannas, yeah. all that sort of stuff Eagles. as well, don't they? Yeah, It can. Um, but, I mean, primarily it's taking out dingoes. And, and like, the, there have been some studies that have been done by other researchers uh, looking at the effectiveness of the baiting. So which they want to know, obviously, because the aim yeah. is to kill the dingoes. Yeah, and um, what... But they found that, that, you know, if they do the baiting uh, according to their particular guidelines, that they'll kill uh, between 70 and 90 to 90% of the dingoes in an area, Great. which is massive. Oh That's gosh. a lot, isn't it? Yeah. So while we're on that topic, I suppose, can you just um, share your experience around what the health of those populations are? Because you talk mm. about the four different... Um, I guess subspecies, but you know, what, yeah. what, what's what are the health of those species in those in the particular areas that you were talking about? Well, we probably need uh, more more information about that. I mean, I I looked at say sixty samples from Victoria and um, you know forty from New South Wales or something like that, but uh, it's not a we have don't have complete coverage across yeah. the whole state or the whole yeah. country. Uh, so that's something that we still we still need more information about. Um, Something that was quite interesting is we found that dingoes in general um, have less genetic diversity than domestic dogs uh, or wolves. So what does that mean exactly? Well, mm. that just means there's less variation in them. So it probably is because of the way that dingoes came to Australia. Um, there probably wouldn't have been a lot of them. And so all of the dingoes in Australia probably came from this small number of animals. And so... You know, originally, you know, thousands of years ago, that just means that there's not as much variation as if there were, say, a thousand dingoes in that first yep. first arrival. You know, yep. probably would have been a few, maybe fifty. I don't know. We we don't really know the numbers, but um, yeah, it's probably going back to that. But it's also potentially something that's being impacted by the baiting programs. Um, we did find that the population in the big desert or in Western Victoria and Narcat Conservation Area in South Australia, that that population seemed to have extremely low genetic diversity and uh, really high levels of um, homozygosity, which basically mm. means most of the individuals have very little uh, differences between each other. So they're like related to each other. Um, inbreeding is probably what the main cause of that, uh, and it's because the population is probably very small and there's no um, dingoes from other areas coming into the area. So it's sort of like an island population, even mm. though it's found in this desert where dingoes could potentially be living or could be getting into, but it, it's because there's lethal control going on all around that, yeah. that yeah. area. And so the dingoes that would have been, you know, moving into the area and breeding with them um, and, you know, introducing more genetic variation, those dingoes are dead. And there's basically just, just this ocean of no dingoes around that population. Terrible, that's isn't it? And Collie, as a researcher, um, is it very difficult to find fossils, knowing that you've, you're dealing with a potentially 
20 kilogram animal at the most. And I know that Lynn said before that, you know, with an animal at that weight, you don't really leave fossils behind. It's very difficult to find um, fossils for an animal of that I weight. Mean, so that's a little bit out of my expertise, but uh, I do know that uh, in general, dingo fossils are, are not super common. Um, that could be due to the density of the population. So to, for them to start showing up in the fossil record, there needs to be a certain number of them around yeah. the landscape because fossil formation is basically a chance event. Um, and if you have very few animals, the chance of creating a fossil of them is unlikely um so you have to have enough dingoes in the area for a fossil to be formed um but also the type of environment where those animals are also impacts on the type of on fossil mm. recruitment so you know fossils uh, don't generally form in tropical kind of hot yeah. humid environments yeah. and so that's you know northern queensland where we would have been expecting sure. to find some of the oldest dingo fossils Maybe that could explain some of it. It could also be the size of the animals as well. So how can they identify that it's only been 4,000 years as opposed to 18,000 that other scientists talk about, that the dingo's been in Australia as a native? Well, I think that um, the 4,000-year date or 5,000-year date or 3,500-year date, that's based basically on uh, fossil records. So they've identified that the oldest fossil uh, of a dingo is about three and a half thousand years old. That they can find, yeah. That they can find. So they extrapolate that to say, well, that's when dingoes arrived. Um, In my opinion, that's not correct. The fossil record sets a minimum time. So we know dingoes were there three and a half thousand years years ago, but we can't tell... The absence of a fossil doesn't mean that they're not there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think that there's a there's a flaw in the logic there. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the molecular dating then can add to that picture. So, for example, during my PhD, I did some molecular dating. So that's where you use the DNA to try to um, ask the question, how long has that animal been in that area? Or how long has that animal, how long since that animal uh, separated from its last ancestor? And so we, we did that with dingoes and we found a date um, that was around about 8,000 to 10,000 years. And that's wow. been sort of corroborated or um, supported by other researchers that have found that similar sort of, you know, 11, 10,000 years is, seems to be when dingoes uh, became distinct from the ancient dogs wow uh, and yeah. so you know that's suggesting that that's probably around about the time that they came to australia uh, the other thing that makes sense with that time frame is that dingoes are most closely related to the new guinea singing dog or new guinea dingo um which is found in papua new guinea um and the island of new guinea and about eight thousand years ago there used to be a land bridge connecting mm. new guinea to australia so essentially, the New Guinea singing dog and dingoes would have been one single population, um, and and so that explains the close relationship between them. Um, whereas the other hypotheses, you know, with the more recent t- dates of about three and a half thousand years, they're sort of saying, oh, you know, dingoes came on a boat, um, but they definitely didn't need to come on a boat because um, they're already here. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. I guess if the ocean takes over the the land bridge. Um... It's not like they've been brought to this country. They were already here, which makes them native. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the Australian um, legislation defines any animal as being native if they were here prior to 1400 AD, um, which is very specific. They plucked so, that one. <laughs> there's no question that dingoes have been here since way, way, way before that. Yeah. Um, they've been here for thousands of years. So even if they did come three and a half thousand years ago, they would still be defined as native under Australian law. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's other ways that we can look at nativeness as well. So um, a ding, uh, an animal would be considered native if they've adapted to a new environment and the other animals or plants in that area have also adapted to the presence of that new animal. Um and that's the case with dingoes. So other Australian uh, mammals, marsupials, birds, reptiles, etc., they have adapted to the presence of dingoes and the role that they play in the mm. ecosystem. And they also respond to the presence of dingoes. So they can uh, smell the presence of dingoes and respond to them appropriately like they're a predator. So yep. they know what they are. Whereas uh, a lot of Australian native animals do not respond appropriately to foxes and cats because mm. they're novel, they're exotic, they don't mm. they don't understand what they are in terms of the sense. They don't have that built-in um, adaptive response from thousands of years of living together to know fox smell equals bad or cat smell equals bad. So I'm going to respond to them like they're scary and a predator. Yeah, well, wow. that's interesting. That's great research, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Now I know you're in a hurry. You need. To, you've got um, a prior engagement, um, <laughs> but your research findings has been fantastic, and and many implications for the way that Australia handles these um our, our native canids. So, um, it's just fantastic yeah. that we're able to have a discussion, you know, and hopefully that uh, goes higher up as well. Yeah. So what progress has yeah. been made so far with with you know based upon the research that you've put together? Um, I haven't seen any concrete changes yeah. uh, to anything particular about how dingoes are being managed. I do know that baiting programs in New South Wales were carried out uh, in the weeks after my research was published, which was oh, quite yeah. devastating. Um, yeah. I know that there are discussions happening in Victoria about the real impact that this research particularly has in Victoria because yeah. of the really significant finding that most of the animals are pure and, and you know, the need then to treat them as a, as a threatened species instead of mm. as an invasive pest. Um, but I think that people really need to um, voice their concern about the way that dingoes are being managed. So write to your local MP, write to the environment minister in your state and tell them what you think. Tell them that you don't support dingoes being killed in national parks and that you want them to relook at the legislation and the way that dingoes are being managed because it's appalling. To yeah. that a it's absolutely disgraceful. Inside yeah. a national park. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, thank you so Hopefully. much for coming on to the show because I know you're in a hurry. Um, oh, thank, yeah. thank you for So thank you. Your research has been just amazing, immortal for these dingoes. Oh, Great um, dingo advocacy. Yeah, thanks so much, Charlie. Really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your knowledge with our audience tonight. It's been, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. And, um, yeah, hopefully chat in the future about the positive steps that are being taken. Yeah, I hope so. This thanks very much. homage to you. All right.
Okay, next on the show we have Lynn. I'll just uh, tally up Lynn. Just uh, giving her a call. Well, I'm just waiting for Lynn. So um, the Australian Dingo Foundation, which um, uh, Lynn Watson has founded, is a non-for-profit organisation established to promote the conservation of the dingo, Canis dingo, as a species and to help maintain biodiversity in Australian ecosystems. I'm just giving her a call now. How's the dingo whisperer going? Lynn Watson. Hello. <laughs> Welcome on the show, The Wellness Couch. How are you going? Oh, lovely to be talking to you. I just want to give you well. homage with the dingoes. I just won't be a sec. <laughs> well, she's known as a dingo whisperer, so we had to give her a great uh, introduction with the dingoes. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Lynn. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, Lynn, you've been such an advocate for the dingo for decades. I mean, you've become known as a dingo whisperer, having 20 <laughs> pairs of dingoes at your Australian Dingo Foundation. What led, you, yeah, what led you to drive such a foundation? Just what was happening with the species um, because I knew from, from being a dog advocate um, that these animals were something special, always wanted to own one. Couldn't own one at the time because it was illegal. Um, happened to be married to the president of the kennel club who would not be embarrassed by me getting into trouble. Oh, wow. Um, and so he says, said to me, if you want to have a dingo, get them legalised and I'll be happy to help you. So that's where it started. I mean, I also had somebody uh, uh, cultivating us very heavily who had a lot of dingoes at the time, and that was old Bruce Jacobs from up at Castlemaine, which a lot of people know all about. Yeah, so the Australian Dingo Fender, Brett, I and, and our girls have been lucky enough to experience the exposure to your Dingo Pup event held each August, September. Now, dingoes, yeah. dingoes have their own um, classification. They look like a dog, but not quite a wolf or not quite a dog, are they? Well, that's the thing. That's been the problem since the beginning. You know, they look like a dog. And that was my also my mistake um, until I actually did get to, to live closely together with them. And once I realised what a terrible mistake we'd made, you know, well, there was still time. We, I'd actually had the kennel club recognise them as a breed of dog. Um, and Bruce was so delighted with me. He said, oh, Lynn, you know, this is the best thing that's ever happened to us. We can now um, have a breed of dog that, that people will buy and and I don't have to black market my puppies and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and so he gave me a gift of two dingoes. Well, of course, I'd had a long history in dogs and I'm a seeker of the truth. It doesn't matter what I go into. <laughs> and um, having done that about dogs, I knew a little bit. I... I actually came to the dingoes with quite a heavy toolbox um, and from knowing about dogs. And doing that, I very quickly realised that these, this gift that had been given to me 
was not a dog at all. It was really a cat in a dog suit. I was going to say that. Like, <laughs> but uh, and, pe- people ask us, like, well, what they like, and they go, are they great pets? I said, no. Ah, uh, uh, look, they, they're so cat-like, it's yeah. not funny. And, in fact, you know, I think something happened in nature that, you know, we tell the kids that the creator ran out of um, of of lion suits and the dingo was left <laughs> with no suit and he got the dog suit that was left. Yeah. It's been terrible for the animal, for the species, because we've all fallen down the wrong path. But they and, are um, so much like cats, like you say, don't they? Like they'll come to you when, if they want to, when they want to, when they're ready to. Yeah. They'll climb yep. up on top Never of stuff. Never do as they're told. No. Yeah. Um, totally independent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just just f- 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 so intelligent that it's scary, scary. Oh, extremely so. Yeah. Abs- and absolutely. they act just like humans um, in so many ways. Uh, the way they the way they teach their children, the way they they are just oh, so. Um, what is the word? Uh, and sentient, totally sentient. When you watch them and mm. teaching, it's it, it brings tears to your eyes. And you know, I've had them thirty five years, and I'm still learning something every day. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, so um, obviously we just actually we've just been speaking to Dr. Kylie Cairns um, and learning about the different subspecies. Is that something that you weren't aware of when you first got into the dingoes as well? Um, well, it was something that we actually got into very early in the piece, way right back in the nineties, when the first DNA studies were being uh, yeah. were being made, and that was, uh, I think, Dr. Kylie's mentor and teacher, who was a wonderful man, Dr. Alan Wilton, who became very friendly with him and we collaborated with him by getting samples wherever we could to him for for his um, database. But of course, back then, the means to looking into dingo DNA was nothing like what we have today. Yeah. And, and we did have a terrible fear at that time that um, it might be true that if dingoes were being bred or were breeding in the wild with dogs, that that they could be completely swamped by by dog genes. Mm. So we had that fear all along, and the worry was always, oh, you know, can we can we um, possibly find out more? Can we get more? Anyway, finally, we did meet with Kylie, and it was clear that Kylie wanted to go a lot further. Mm. Uh, than what she was aware of the overseas uh, advances in in mm, DNA, amazing. and amazing she was ready outcome. to go there. And Peter and I knew that that this was the way we had to go. We so we um, so we found we actually started the foundation because we thought, how 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 can we possibly save this species if that's what where they're going, and. Uh, we knew that it had to be via DNA. So we, you know, we we already had loved that the dingoes that Bruce had given mm-hmm. us. And uh, before very long, we had not two, but four or five. <laughs> and yeah. we decided that we would like to sort of expand our knowledge, move out of our heavy involvement with dogs and um, do something for this species. So it, it just grew from there. And, of course, 
you know, um, Bradley Smith came into our lives, uh, who has uh, written the, the Dingo book. Um, the, well, the, the, let's say the the best one that's out there at the, at the, to this point. And um, we, Bradley and I, wanted to further the the advancements of the DNA. So that was how we came across Kylie. And Kylie said, "Look, oh, I want to. There's there's such a a huge advance in it in in other countries. Mm, you know, I'd yeah. really like to do this SNPs. She called it." Set, rather than the mitochondrial DNA, which was explained to us as being, you know, just really looking at the female line. And it would be better if we could look at the entire genome. Um, at that time, the expense was just outrageous mm. to be able to do a genome. Yeah. Anyway, as time's gone on, we've, we've gone that way. And Kylie has proven herself to be top of the tree. Yep, amazing Absolute. outcome. Oh, absolute genius, yeah. that lady. Yeah. Uh, Definitely I can't does. I can't say enough about her. Um, she wants everything to be just right. Anyway, Peter and I realised that the only way that we could un- untangle this terrible mess of the wild dog talk and the hybridisation talk, because I by now, you know, we had had a few dingoes. We'd moved to a property we're in now, which is a 40-acre property, we chose it. Took five years to find it. We chose it to have our dingoes, um, and we we knew a lot of dog people. We knew a lot of cattle, uh, yeah. sheep dog mm. people who want mm. who said, "Look, the best the best sheep dog we've ever seen was part dingo. You know, mm. can we? Could you please let us use one of your dingoes over yeah. our our uh, kelpies so that we can try for some better ones? Well, try as we might, year in and year <laughs> out, we could never produce hybrids. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, and I was a master breeder. I'd already bred 150 champions of mm, various breeds yeah. by now, and and why couldn't we? Why was this not happening? And of course, understanding over time, uh, the dingoes giving us their, up their secrets that they only breed in winter, and why do they only breed in winter? Uh, all of that led us to believe that the answer to our problem was to find out once and for all whether it was all hybrids and, and mixed dogs out there or not, because wow. we could never yeah. produce a hybrid. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The reason being, of course, because dingoes have one breeding season, it's run by nature, yeah. it's not mixed up like dogs where they can breed any time mm. of the year, and there is only that that Window. mechanism, yeah. which is the amount of daylight on the retina of the female, which stirs the hormones up, which then makes pheromones, which then brings the males into fertility. Wow, yeah. And only during win- during that autumn equinox mm-hmm. are the dingoes ready to breed. We realised that dingo females were only ever fertile for two days in the year. Yeah, amazing. So think about it. How is it possible for Mr Doggy mm. to come across sweet-smelling Miss Dingo <laughs> on those two days in the wild when um, the male dingoes wouldn't be around to protect her. So it, it slow, slowly dawned on us that there could not really be hybrids in the wild. So we had this hypothesis that firstly, maybe the dingoes weren't all hybrids. Secondly, because we were unable without great difficulty to produce uh, crossbreeds between dingoes and hybrids, we realised that if there were hybrids in the wild, 
that they would have to have been born in captivity mm, and probably, true. you know, selected a couple out of the litter and dumped the rest because they were part dingoes. But those animals didn't have enough genetics of a dingo to survive, to adulthood, to reproduce. So that left us in a place of saying, you know what, dingoes are not are not breeding with dogs out there. Dingoes are protected by nature from being mixed with dogs. Do we go on with our sanctuary here, which was costing us a lot of money? Mm. We need to know the answer to that question. Are they all hybrids out there or are they not? And so we we set about raising the funds to do the study, which was going to be somewhere around in the vicinity of $150,000. And because we could get no funding, it was all our own fundraising with the help of some wonderful people uh, who, who donated heavily, we were able to, to get those funds together and get this study going. Um, and it came to us fairly early in the piece that there is definitely uh, a substance to our study, that our hypothesis is probably correct. Mm. And then, lo and behold, into our lives comes Wandy. Mm. <laughs> the Wandy, the dingo pup and, that fell from the sky. Well, exactly. Now, Peter, unfortunately, our wish was, you know, here we were trying to keep a few bloodlines together and trading with other um, people with similar ideas around Australia, but we'd come to realise that most of our dingoes were now related, not closely, but we were keeping them yep. diversified in their breeding lines. And um, we we prayed for a, maybe a wild dingo of fresh breeding lines for our own gene pool here because we wanted them to be diverse and not inbred. Um, and so Peter had passed. It was all a terrible time. But yeah. then suddenly out of the sky, literally, <laughs> literally, came the answer to our prayer and that was Wandy. And so before and Wendy, we ever Wendy got him. means manifestation of the spirit. So how lucky are you? Could you just quickly just describe <laughs> exactly. how Wandy came yeah, into your life? Lot, because some people might not know. Yeah, a lot of people no, in the audience may Wandy. not be aware of um, how he did come well, out of the sky. I'd have to tell a story. You know, Wandy, <laughs> Wandy came via a veterinary call to me one morning. said, oh, uh, Lynn, um, you know, we understand you've got dingoes and you would be able to make an ID for us. We have a little animal that's been brought into us and we don't know whether it's a fox or a dog or a dingo. Um, could you, if we send you a picture, could you maybe do an ID? So they send a few pictures by the phone. I said, of course. And I said, well, it looks like a little dingo pup to me. I can tell you it's not a fox and it doesn't look like any dog breed I know and I know plenty. So she said, oh, well, if it's a dingo, we have to euthanize it by law. Really? And, and she said, I don't want to do that because this little critter is so sweet um, and so I, she said, look, he's got, he's got some very nasty gashes in his back, which we think came from mm. a bird of prey, an eagle or a powerful owl. They um, take them I'm up, going, don't they, and, and throw them on the ground to kill them Yeah, they, well, yeah. Uh, possibly an owl would have picked him up at night. I don't know, but they're big and they can take mm. a small puppy. Yeah. And they do because we've actually lost one here, the sanctuary, oh, to an wow. eagle. Wow. Um, and bigger than that pup. Anyway, I asked her, I said, look, just take a cheek swab, would you, and send it off to Dr. Kylie Cairns in New, Uni New South Wales because she is able to tell if we have dingoes or dogs. 
and, um, you know, that will help us all. And in the mean, she said, would you rehab this puppy after I've, you know, set it on the right course? And I said, of course. So that puppy came to us a couple of weeks later, um, right into our hearts, I might say. Mm. And I knew why it was in her heart, but we didn't get the result of his DNA for three months because because the there was no computer here who could really <laughs> unravel the 295,000 uh, genes that we were looking at here. <laughs> yeah, wow. Previously, we'd only looked at 23. Yeah. So finally got they got that going and then finally we got the answer that there wasn't a dog gene to be found in Wandy's DNA. Yeah, amazing. So that was our wish granted and uh, suddenly we started doing the math and the math said um, one out of one <laughs> equals 100%. Yeah. And just maybe our hypothesis was the right one, that there were very few, if any, actual hybrids between dogs and dingoes in the wild, that dingoes are protected from from this by the very fact that they only have two days in a year when they can conceive mm. puppies. Mm. And uh, since then, you know, everything's just grown. We've we've incurred the absolute hatred of the dog killers who have an industry mm. going out there. Um, we've also received a lot of unwanted attention um, from the department who also once has a lot of jobs mm. in mm. making sure that dingoes are not in captivity. And uh, so it, it it's actually brought down upon our heads a lot of angst and yeah. a lot of fear. But the thing that's come out of it finally now after the sixth year was Kylie's wonderful paper. And, of course, it was so rigorously peer-reviewed because mm. we all knew what was coming, what this meant. Yeah. Um, and, and, that, and that it had to be right. We couldn't make a mistake. And so she had asked every master geneticist in the world to check her work. And so it actually took all that time before we could, could before she finally published. But yeah, nice. uh, it's there now. It doesn't lie. The science is before us all. No, and it's great. Too many people have mm. now got to restock yep. um, their thoughts on yep. on what this animal does. And many agriculturists uh, are concerned because of the misinformation disseminated to the public, such as a dingo is a wild dog and it's one of the issues that poor dingo faces but when I look at the statistics um, you know and we're talking about science um, for the agriculturist it's only 0.01 I'm not saying only because I mean each you know animal life is important but uh, it's only 0.01% of agriculture that is affected by what they term wild dog which is really a dingo and in fact what about the 13 million lambs that die annually in Australia? So the focus is really skewed. There's no critical thinking, you know. Well, exactly. If, yeah. there, if there was and if it was, in fact, economic thinking, um, we can put the numbers down per year. Like it's two, 200 per million. <laughs> if we were to repay those farmers who lost 200 to, to uh, carnivores or whatever, at, at top price... $300 per sheep. Or have something <laughs> it, in place. It can still not come anywhere yeah. near the millions we spend no. on wiping out a species that our environment absolutely needs. 
this animal does the job of a lion, does the job of a tiger, does the job of a hyena, does the job of a jackal, does the job of a does the job of all those animals on every other continent. And it eats 500 grams a day. Gosh, yeah. I mean, that is just astounding that a 20-kilogram animal could be the apex predator and keep everything in balance before the coming of the upsetters of balance being Europeans. Yeah, and Mm. and many grazers, like you know, say that by leaving the dingo alone, we have a reduction in goats, pigs and foxes. No wild dogs or other dingoes coming within their area. That's right, they protect their own territory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they say that the odd calf gets bitten, but very um, few compared to people who actually bait in their area. So we end up with more grass due to less macropods, they say, and, and they spend no time or money on pest control because a dingo does it naturally for them. And That's they, right. And they say that they have great diversity. In fact, I know that there's so many scientific studies advocating for our dingo, and one between, I know it's probably a little bit older now, but it's 212 to 214, and it was a piece in Anthropocene that studied mam- um, mammal and vegetation structure in northeast Australia's savannas. And each area was tagged where dingoes were poisoned to save livestock and they kept an area where dingoes were left alone. The results were unanimous and straightforward. Dingoes, mm-hmm. um, where dingoes were poisoned, cats proliferated, so did wallabies and kangaroos. And the understory of plants and vegetation became sparse. Um, and obviously native rodents were also... Um, you know, to be few. But in opposition to that, they found that dingoes, um, when they were left alone, fewer introduced species of foxes, cats, smaller populations of wallabies and kangaroos. Um, and they found that thriving vegetation and larger native rodent population were were um, um, available. So biodiversity I- became really obvious in that um, in that research. And I know that... Well, every study has, has come up with the same... Uh, finish and right now of course it's deer that is the major uh, problem in our uh, areas areas around farming areas um mm. the deer are you know destructive and everything else and of course when we look at what dingoes eat every study that's been done since 1916 on what dingoes eat via normally uh post-mortem has been 0.04% of farmed meat. Always, in every test since then, there's never been a, pro- a proof that dinkos even eat farmed meat. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. And, yeah. of course, their genetics also show that they can't digest fat yeah. animals. They just cannot digest fat. They've got a 30,000-year-old metabolism, which doesn't make the enzymes that deal with uh, grains or with, with fat. So they really don't want to chase animals that are no. fat. They would prefer a rabbit or a bush rat, and a bush rat a day is all a dingo needs. Mm. Yeah. They're great at negating the feral population of foxes, cats and goats. I learnt that from you. I remember that. But um, Oh, my goodness. Know- we've just been handed a most amazing uh, film clip this week of uh, a dingo racing up a, a mulga tree and wow. absolutely taking this cat down. Uh, wow. It's a great bit of video, and it's an absolute killer. Um, it's it needs to be shown. Um, it's not very nice, but it, no. it is with. Uh, it's just an amazing piece of footage. So it, it, even where the cats are, leave the dingoes alone, and they will deal with them. Um, they can climb trees and almost as well as a cat. <laughs> 
Yeah, they they oh we've they seen that can <laughs> climb, can't they? And that, now then, there are some quite large. Yeah, well, um, the video is there to see, yeah. and um, oh, we're really excited. We want we do want to publicise this piece of footage, and and we will. But uh, yeah, right now I think the public has swung. Uh, we always knew that the dingo was favoured species, even though he might be a bit naughty sometimes. Mm. The public really love the dingo. Our surveys have showed 85% of the public like the dingo anyway. So I think um, it needs to get a, a chance. It needs a chance. And it's so close to being absolutely wiped out in the yeah. in the west of Victoria on the South Australian border that it's it's appalling. It's, it's something that modern human beings with their education should know. You know, we lost the thylacine. Mm. Why are we trying to do the same mm. to the only thing we've got left in our environment that's going to deal with the introduced species that are chewing up the environment? Yeah, we've got we've got so much research that supports. I mean, we have the commonality of the dingo with the wolves in the Yellowstone National Park. Yep. That's all the conclusion of research that occurred when the wolves were reintroduced into the National Park, the biodiversity flourished. I mean, you know, oh. so many studies supporting our native Yeah, plant. and honestly, we would have done a study here the same had we um, been aware um, because uh, we, we've we had a, a our famous plant man came along here and sat down to meet our dingoes and he was sitting on a log in, in the paddock that we've had our dingoes in for probably now 15 years or more running in that paddock, digging holes, digging dens under the trees, um, pulling out metres of soil for their tunnels. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, this man sat there and he said, do you, have you planted all those? Pl-? He said, I can see 23 types of native grasses <laughs> in this paddock. And I, and I said, we don't do anything except cut it a bit short and dingoes live in here and birds or whatever. And I said, but our dingoes do love, absolutely love the larvae of that African beetle, mm. which is like a little witchetty grub that gets in the roots of the native plants. Mm. And I said, they do love eating those. So I said, they're probably keeping those low. But I said, I think what might be happening is when they dig up all this soil and take it away and shake it out, that they're actually planting some ancient seeds that haven't had a chance to come <laughs> yeah. up. And he, he agreed. He said, oh, that's amazing. And I said, I wish I'd known before he ever introduced the dingoes to this paddock because we could have done baseline yeah. studies and it's happening here believe you me we know it's happening in australia where the dingoes are allowed to look after his territory we we have biodiversity as it should be and for the indigenous, but where he's taken out yeah. we have goats and pigs and foxes and deer and it's really horrible and the um the dingo also plays a sacred value in the creation stories of various indigenous clan groups like significant spiritual values both a kinship and Family member as and they're a totem animal as well as serving the um do we say Aboriginal now is it change again hasn't it back mythology um of their travels of ancestral dingoes that map out their song lines. Look, um, we that's true, and and it's the Victorian dingoes which survive, which are clinging to existence by the finest thread, mm. which really have got to be looked at and and protected. Yeah. Their genetics, it appears, are. Uh, are absolutely fulfilling those song lines. They're the, the living proof of those song lines because they've been cut off 
geographically yeah. from gene flow from other dingoes since the coming of the sheep, mm. which is at 260 years. So they've had no influx of fresh blood into those lines. Yet the lines that are there show the mixture uh, and a very interesting mixture of the same dingo blood that we're seeing in Fraser Island, the same dingo blood that we're seeing mm. in the Kimberley, that those bloodlines have travelled across Australia to that point, mm. which was a trading point, um, because the artefacts are there to prove it as well. It's not just the song yeah. lines. And the bloodlines of the dingoes that live there are living proof that those those animals have crossed deserts with their people and and created a small population there uh, and then a big desert, little desert, Narcat area. They're so special. They need to be protected. They're so close to extinction. Yeah. We, we've got to do something or live forever in shame. Let's talk about some of the events that you have, um, Lynn, at the Dingo Foundation. Obviously, I mentioned the um, the puppy greets in July and August. I mean, we've been the lucky recipients of, of being out there and having, you know, like about 20 dingo pups running at us and not forgetting that Angelique wearing that white coat and being aligned yeah. with, I remember Kiki, <laughs> I think it was Kiki that you've now got, the white Yeah, or Kiki's, yeah. Kiki's a grandma now. <laughs> yeah, it's just beautiful just watching well, that. Um, we so lucky. Actually, the last time we were out there, we picked up little Cora and... She's a mum now as well. Yeah, well, we just have to keep the lines going. Yeah. And that's, the, you know, we don't breed for the sake of breeding. We breed to just keep the the biodiversity going in the lines. And this is something that the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act of the mm. Victorian government actually uh, demands that the government do. But, of course, uh, that hasn't been done. We're doing it. We're doing what should be done. Um but, you know, it really shouldn't be up to private. We, we have to self-fund yeah. because the the uh, rural lobby has kept the dingo on the pest list. It means mm. we can get no funding and and we have to make our own. But anyway, our, our, our puppy encounter days, you know, <laughs> are, are training days That's for socialisation and making those puppies fit for purpose in, to go to the zoos that have ordered them. Or the fauna parks, so that they, you know, they won't be frightened of humans, and they'll be able to deal with the life that's ahead of them. But yeah, it's a wonderful thing for people to to actually um, have those cubs sitting yeah. on them for a photo and smiling away and so you got enjoying puppy greets, it. Yeah, that are in July. We and have August. puppies at yeah, we have our puppies at the moment where. We don't advertise because we just simply can't keep up with the demand. I was going to say, where can people contact and get tickets if they, they want to? Yeah, well, if they go on onto the Australian Dingo Foundation um, website or, or on Dingo Discovery Sanctuary website, you'll find how you can book. But the best way to do is a book, ring up, decide when you want to come. We run sessions which we will only allow 12 people in yeah, each. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah. Um, and uh, so very small and so, you know, dealing with an oversupply is a bit hard. So we don't advertise, but from year to year, people won't miss it. That's sort of a bit and, of a secret. Um, so if you want to get out there, get in fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give us a call. Yeah. You must give us a call. Booking's only. And then you go online, buy a ticket. Amazing and, experience. And yeah. that 
keeps us afloat for the, a little while in the, the forthcoming year. And you've we got, do have some wonderful sponsors. Yeah, and you've got seven, eight events too in January, February. I can see why, because of the Howling Dingo. <laughs> well, we, we've got some wonderful things in the, in the pipeline, I must say. I'm, I'm buoyed. Um, because of Kylie's paper results, um, it means that we go forward. Had had mm. the results, all we all we wanted that study done for was to know whether we go, whether we tread forward or whether we stop now because it's a waste of money and time and our effort. And of course, the results showing that the dingo is a species on its own and it's yeah. more or less protected from hybridisation. And and what we have out there is is the wild dingo. All we now need is the government to do what they should do and protect them because they're nowhere else in the world. You know, they have one cousin and yeah. that's the New Guinea singing dog. Yeah. And that proves that the dingo must have walked here when New Guinea and Australia were mm. one continent. Now, so, is it worth mentioning that there are different colours of dingoes too? Because like most people think about you know, the, the the ginger or red dingo, but there are oh, different right. colours. And, and now there's brindles and there's um, sables. Well, and, well, that, and, that, yeah, exactly. That's that magic coloration. That. Yeah, Those that... colorations are all about camouflage. Mm. And but, there are yeah. dingoes, pure dingoes come in black and tan. Yep. They come in almost white and they come in the ginger and the sandy. Now, of course, uh, we noticed after all the fires we had in previous years from 2019, whether it was a smoke in the air or what happened, mm. but it happened on it happened on Gari as well, that suddenly we we had a lot of puppies born that were oh. sabled or they had a lot of black in their coat. Mm. And, of course, that made them camouflage really well against the burnt wood. Amazing. Yeah. I know, nature just is incredible and we just sit there in awe as we realise these things yeah. that are happening before our eyes. But, but yeah, yeah, dingoes can be almost all white with just patches as well. Yeah. Uh, that signifies that they're not getting a, a good flow of genetics all the way through for all the colours. It signifies to me that they're geographically cut off from gene flow and so they're becoming inbred. But, um, and again, it's something we should be looking at to, yeah. to you know, if we're going to e ever keep this species doing its job in our ecosystems. And we really, Australia really needs them there. Yeah. So, unfortunately, our time has come to a close. But, look, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and sharing I just love your wisdom you with us. It's a, look, it's a really <laughs> – well, You better come visit us. Yeah, yeah. we always <laughs> learn something every time we speak to you, something new. Well, um, I learn something new every day, so that's a good thing. But the dingoes teach it to me. They trust me. Yeah, yeah we're always amazing, students. We're students as well to our alpines, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, lovely talking to you. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you so much. Thank and thank you for so sharing it. And look, this information is really important to get out. As you said, the survival of the species really is at stake um, oh, with this information. You guys that's are doing a great out, job. So. Thank you so and much. And the say, area down there, people need to become very proud of the dingoes that are down there. Yeah, well, I just yeah. want to say that it's time that we moved away from the colonial mindset too and the way it influences human wildlife conflict in this country. Uh, we need to better appreciate the unique, amazing wildlife that Australia has. Um, and reconfigure our appalling reputation in the treatment of our wildlife, particularly our dingoes. And in the um, case of the dingo, it's bringing back the thriving biodiversity that we actually need in Australia. Here, here. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Lynn. Right. You're okay. just uh, such a dingo whisperer. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You really appreciate it. Bye. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 
And that's 87.6 FM, Apollo Bay Radio, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 